Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, Paul or Chandler would like to get those from you. And we will lift you up this week in prayer. If you're visiting with us, we pray you'll come back again and again and again and again. Our journey through Romans has really brought us face to face with the liberty of the gospel. Through Jesus Christ, we have received deliverance from the guilty verdict that hangs over our lives because of our rebellious, flagrant um, disregard for God's righteous law. Sin's penalty has been lifted through Christ. Those who turn to Him and trust in Him know God's pardon and forgiveness and are justified in the courtroom of heaven. I think of Charles Wesley's classic hymn, And Can It Be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. Alive in Him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Not only that, but we have also discovered in the letter to the Romans that that we've been set free from ourselves, from our sinful natures. Completely? No, that's what sanctification's about. But we have within us the spirit of the living God to give us power and strength to overcome and to be conformed into the image of Christ, which ought to be a tremendous hope to every one of us here today. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Yes, we will contend with our flesh as long as we live in this world, but he is greater still. He's greater than anything this world, anything our flesh, or anything the devil could bring into our life. Through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, we're in the process of overcoming sin. That is the picture of the Christian. We're lifelong repenters. That means when we are arrested with the fact that we have violated God's word, we have violated his, his way, and perhaps in our thought life, perhaps with something we've said, perhaps something we've done, perhaps something we've looked at, we immediately confess it to the Lord and seek his renewal and press on in obedience, knowing that our forgiveness is sure in Jesus Christ. This isn't following the example that Jesus mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount, like the Gentiles who prayed in a gibberish or in a nonsensical way. This is sincerely as we anguish over, in sincerity as we anguish over our sin. The Christian life really is in essence supernatural living. I'm not talking about witchcraft or sorcery. Those are an abomination to God because they seek to bypass God's sovereign reign, His all-sufficiency to meet our needs and for us to rely upon Him as our good shepherd. We are called to seek Him and Him alone for every need in our life and to find our identity in Jesus Christ and Him alone. He is the one who supplies and satisfies our every need. And you may not feel that way. You may not think, wow, my Christian life, that's supernatural living. (laughs) You may never have viewed your Christian life that way. You walk with Christ. uh, Your walk with Him, however, is defined as supernatural because the Spirit of God lives within you and is a dynamic relationship as He's conforming us into the image of His Son. And so when we look at Romans 8, verses 5 through 11, it, it reveals a distinction between life in the flesh 
Life without Christ and life in the Spirit yielded to him to walk in the obedience of his word. We find this contrast between the carnal man, the carnal person, the unbeliever who lives according to the flesh and the believer in Jesus Christ who lives according to the Spirit and has been set free to pursue God's way. So when we're not in line with that pattern of obedience, we're to confess it and to seek the Lord afresh and anew. I'm hoping this will be tremendously practical as you think through the thoughts and intents of your heart and allow God's Word to speak to you on the issues of your heart and the issues of your life. Paul is holding up for us this contrast between those who live according to the flesh and those who walk according to the Spirit. He uses the word flesh in verses 5 and a number of places in chapter 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, that word flesh is the Greek word sarx, which is used in a number of different ways. You know, words have many usages, and in the Bible that is certainly true. Um, sometimes flesh is used to describe parts of the body. Sometimes it's used to describe the whole body. When Paul says in Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Sometimes the word flesh is used to describe the entire human family. All flesh is as grass, the psalmist said. Sometimes this word flesh refers to the sensual part of our nature, the fallen part of our, our, our human nature. So, but what does it mean in Romans 8? Well, I think in context in Romans 7 and 8, the word flesh is a term used for the unregenerate person, the unbeliever, one who has not tasted of the goodness of God. It's describing the unbeliever. Are you an unbeliever? What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, have you, maybe you say, I believe in God. Well, that's nice. The devil believes it that much. <laughs> I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just wanting to have a conversation if you're in that category. What does it mean to be an unbeliever? It's not merely um, a belief in God. Most people believe that. It seems evident in light of the glory of creation that there is a God, the designer of the human body and of all that we see. But when I make reference to an unbeliever or one who lives according to the flesh, I'm referring to one who, is, who has not experienced God's salvation, who has not um, been born again by the Spirit, as Jesus commanded and spoke of in John 3. Unless you're born again, he said to Nicodemus, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so this is a supernatural work of God, where you hear the gospel and you come to see the good news in light of your uh, you're standing with God, falling short of his glory because of sin, and you call out to him, and through the work of the Spirit, you are brought into his forever family. You are adopted by him, and your sins are forgiven, and your soul is restored. So, has that happened in your life? If not, see, see yourself in this message with, I'm, I'm living according to the flesh, and I'm setting my mind and my heart on the things of the flesh. If you're a believer and you've, you're struggling with some aspect of your old nature, 
May this morning be like every Sunday morning should be, where we're owning our sin and acknowledging our sin and coming to Christ, who is the great restorer of new beginnings, and to call out to him. In Romans 8, 5 through 9, that'll be our focus this week, those who live according to the flesh. Let me begin first by just asking the question, why are we introduced to this comparison? Those who walk according to the flesh, those who walk according to the spirit. It's of utmost importance. It really goes to the heart of who am I living for? Why am I living? It it brings definition and purpose to why we live. I think one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter to a Christian congregation in Rome that has transcended the centuries and has come like a missile into this gathering here today as truth. I, I, I can think of several reasons why Paul would introduce this comparison in writing to Christians. Let's remember that. He's writing to Christians. I, I think one of the reasons is to confront nominal Christianity. That is just a casual association with church or Christianity without any real change. Truth be known, if the dictates of your heart were revealed to others, it would resemble those who don't know the Lord. Those who are walking according to the course of this world to confront nominal Christianity. So one of the things that has been convenient in theology over the last hundred years or so has been a creation of a third category that we often do battle with here and that is the carnal Christian. So you have the unbeliever, the one who has not responded to the gospel and doesn't intend to at present. You have the believer in Jesus Christ who has been um, born again by the Spirit and is a believer in Christ and for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And then you have the carnal believer who, I I don't want to disassociate myself from Christianity. In fact, I would like all the the good things that come from it, but I'm, I'm pretty much living my own way. And so that sounds convenient, doesn't it? That sounds like a good American doctrine. But that's not biblical Christianity. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not creating a third category of people. He's confronting nominal Christianity. Secondly, I I think this is an encouragement for us to grow spiritually. How serious are you about your spiritual growth? If we're not to walk according to the flesh, but we're to walk walk according to the Spirit, how, how serious are we about pursuing that? What would take place in your life and in mine if we're serious about that? Well, we would bring God's Word into our daily life. We would take seriously all the commands that he's given in his word that Jesus said to the disciples in the Great Commission, go into all the world, making disciples of them, teaching them everything that I've commanded to you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Are you growing as a Christian? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Are you bringing God's word into your life that you might grow in Christ? I think he's giving this contrast to say to believers, grow. Apply the means of grace that God has given. Unite with a local church and build your life around it. 
in that you will hear the word of God and be a part of other Christians, which is God's intention for you to go strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. I think he does this too to remind us of our destiny in Christ. He who has begun a good work in you will continue that work until the day of Jesus Christ. We have a destiny in Christ. We have a a future reunion with him. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. And he speaks of this great reunion where we shall see him as he is in resurrected bodies, a new redemption, a new heaven, a new earth. I think that's one of the reasons, or several reasons why we are confronted with this comparison. Notice with me secondly. Once again, there are only two types of people presented in the Bible. Only two. Raise your hand if you've ever heard me say that here. <laughs> I, I find, every time I find that, I hold that up for us. There are not many ways to God. There are two. There's one. <laughs> there are two groups of people. What you do with that one message. There are, there are only two types of people in this world. The book of Genesis. Listen to just a quick survey of the scripture. In the book of Genesis, those who called upon the name of the Lord and those who didn't. In the book of Deuteronomy, those who walked in obedience to God's covenant and those who embraced idolatry and lived under the curse promised. In the book of Psalms, it begins with a comparison of these two people, this one way to God. There's the, the, the righteous man in Psalm 1 who walks not a counsel, according to the counsel of this world, but delights in God's word and walks by faith in him and trusts him. And then the wicked are not so. They perish. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is defined as the fear of the Lord. Those who fear the Lord, a holy reverence for Him, a holy respect captured by God's ways and a longing to follow Him in obedience are said to be wise. And those who reject His ways and live according to however they want to live, well, they're called simply fools in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. In Isaiah, he says, come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There's only one way to be forgiven. God says, Let me, let's reason together. Your way's not going to do it. Your self-improvement efforts aren't going to get it. In the teaching of Jesus, he emphasized this numerous times in his teaching ministry, probably with greatest emphasis in the Sermon on the Mount. And he emphasized in the closing of the Sermon on the Mount, he said that the gate is narrow that leads to life. It's, it's narrow and it's hard that leads to life. Jesus didn't say there are many ways to life. There's a narrow gate. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Because wide and broad is the way that leads where? To destruction. And many there are who are on that road. Enter by the narrow gate this morning. Allow a flag to be planted in your mind that there aren't many ways to God. Jesus Christ said there's one way and I need to go through Him. And that is not politically correct. But since when do we play to the political correctness of our day? 
We're called to be prophetic and biblical and to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ. There's salvation in no other name. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In the Sermon on the Mount, he contrasted good fruit with bad fruit. He spoke about the wise man who built his house on the rock and the fool who built on sand. In 1 Corinthians, Paul spoke in clear terms. The preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But unto us which are being saved, it's the power of God. Two groups of people, only one way. At the great white throne judgment, I can't read Revelation 20 without feeling just a great, sober pause. When the scripture says, this is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. And those whose name is written in the book of life are saved. Two groups of people. Those in the book of life and those not. What I'm preaching to you is not religious abuse. (laughs) What I'm preaching to you today, I'm not employing scare tactics to manipulate you to what I want you to do. I want you to come to Christ. I want you to follow Him. I want you to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And so I'm preaching to you this morning on the urgency of being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and living every day of your life for Him. He is worthy of it, you know. Now, let's... Let's dig into this text. Thirdly, I would say, determining the flesh from the spirit. Remember how Paul began the book of Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, Christ came from the tribe of Judah. He came unto his own, his own received him not. Dispensationally, he came to the Jews first. And praise be to God, that His grace has reached out into us, most of whom are Gentiles. It has reached to us. And that God's righteousness is credited to us through this gospel. He's revealed this gospel by trust in Christ, faith in Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. So the way the gospel comes into our lives is that we, we agree with the content of it. We personally trust through repentance and faith that these claims are true, that I can take Jesus at his word. And determining the flesh from the spirit begins with your response to this gospel. And notice the diagnosis that Paul gives in Romans 8. What is the mark of the unregenerate? What is the mark of the unbeliever? He diagnoses this for us in, I think, critical terms. The diagnosis given in these verses of one who walks according to the flesh. You ready? First, your thoughts. Your thoughts. What drives your thinking? That is a way to determine, am I in the flesh or in the spirit? What do you think about? What drives your life? He says in verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on what? The things of the flesh. 
We will struggle constantly as believers with indwelling sin until we see Jesus Christ. Again, this description of one who walks according to the flesh is one given over to that and continues to walk in it as the unbeliever. But we know as believers, we deal with an indwelling sin issue. We deal with it every day. The allurements and the deception will be a reality of this life until we enter into the presence of the Lord. And following, living according to your sinful nature leads to a life dominated by sinful things. So the mark of the unbeliever is in one form or another, that's the banner over their life. Now we wouldn't assess that from a human realm. Sometimes we see it. Sometimes it's flagrant. But we are masters as sinners in describing who we really, dis- disguising who we really are. Some helpful cross-references, Galatians 6, 7 through 9. I'll mention them. You write them down. I'm going to move quickly through these, but uh, you can look them up later if you can't get there. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. You, re- you sow destruction, you're going to reap destruction. For the one who sows to his flesh will, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Don't grow weary in well-doing, he says. Well, how, how do I sow to the flesh? I, well, I, I, I embrace a life that, that I find in God's Word is contrary to His way. That leads us to... Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, don't be deceived. And then he, he mentions some of these sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean someone who's ever committed one of these sins can never enter the kingdom of God. Why? Nobody would ever enter. This is describing someone who continues in this path of a fleshly life. In the gentle, patient calling of the God who says, come to me. It's by His kindness that we are led to repentance. True conversion brings a renewed mind. A renewed thinking. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 4 to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That is a work of God and it's also our effort to want to learn and to digest the things that God has given to us through His Word. One day, we'll get to Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves to God as living sacrifices. He goes on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's a lifelong process, believers. A renewed mind. So, someone who is given over to the flesh, their thoughts are given over to the things of the flesh. Notice, secondly, um, your spiritual condition, your condition. Do you hear God's word as authoritative in your life? Verse six, for to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death, spiritual death. 
But to set the mind on the Spirit, that's life and peace. Do you realize how much money people are paying for life and peace at present? This is a universal human desire. Life and peace. And this world offers avenues for peace and life in all the wrong ways. Leaving us high and dry. Scripture declares that as an unbeliever, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. It, does, it, it declares that life in the flesh means that we are dead in our sins, death. You pursue the deeds of the flesh, a life of the flesh, it is death. Scripture declares that life in the flesh means that we are dead in our sins. One pastor reflected on a funeral he conducted for a baby. A little girl was killed in an automobile accident. And before the service, the mother kept reaching into the casket, taking the lifeless little body in her arms and caressing her and crying softly to her. The baby, of course, could no longer respond to anything in the physical realm. There was no life in the child's body. The unsaved person is a spiritual corpse, the scripture says. Ephesians 2, verse 1, we are dead in our trespasses and sins and consequently is completely unable in, in ourselves to respond to the things of God. Unless the Spirit of God does what? Comes to us and quickens us, convicting us of sin. Your hope of entering into the kingdom of God rests on God's Spirit working in your heart in moments like this to convince you that your way of trying to get to God and find life and peace is bankrupt apart from knowing and savoring Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Unless the Spirit of God intervenes by convicting of sin and enabling a response to God by faith and thus being made alive, the unsaved person is insensitive to the things of God as that baby was to the caresses and cries of its mother. Those who are in the Spirit are captured by the things of God. Are you captured by the things of God? Is there within you this insatiable desire to know Him better? Can you say with the Apostle Paul that I might know Him, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, being conformed to the image of His death, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. Okay, you've been talking about flesh. What, what do you mean? Well, I alluded to that list that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6. How about Galatians 5 again? For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, Paul wrote. They're opposed to each other. So maybe you're a believer and you're thinking, man, I feel like I've got a civil war going on in here. You do. Yeah. Every day is a day... And answering the question, who are you going to live for? And what do true believers do? They continue to press on, even through difficult seasons of life. That was what Romans 7 was all about. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. But when we talk about the flesh, what are we talking about? I think... We know when we're walking in the Spirit as believers and when we're walking in the flesh. Maybe you're unconvinced of the gospel at this point in your life. What do you mean by flesh, pastor? What, what do you mean by that? 
I would mean the list that Paul references in Galatians 5, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and on and on and on it goes. I think, truth be known, we need little convincing of what sin really is. And much of it is, I just want to do what I want to do. Maybe you have a hard time connecting with that list. Maybe we could expand on it and say the subtleties of, of the flesh, the love of money. What's so hard about these things is, again, the way we camouflage them in our lives. Love of money, fear of man. You play for the crowd instead of the glory of Christ. Your goals, your wants, your dreams, nothing wrong with goals and desires and dreams. Don't see Christ as the killer of your dreams. He's the dream maker. (laughs) He's the one who, who has come that we might have life and have it to the full. Perhaps your flesh could be seen in this way. You have no room for Jesus Christ in your life at all. Oh, you wouldn't deny him outright. But there's no distinction between you and the unbeliever. And maybe that is because you're not saved. Life and peace, that is a universal desire. There's passion to seek life and peace. He says, set your mind. Look at that word, set your mind. Interesting Greek word. Phronema, to think, to have a mindset, the tendency or inclination of the mind, and it's bent. It includes the act of the understanding and of the will. In Romans 8, in these verses, it teaches that the will follows or obeys the dominant interest of the mind. It is the flesh, then. Then death follows. If it is the flesh, then death follows. If it's the spirit, then it's life and peace. Do you know, don't we see that, believer, you know, in the Christian life when, we're, when we're, we know that we've obeyed what God wants us to do? That there's life and there's peace? Yielding to the Spirit, choosing to let the Holy Spirit control your thoughts. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, Paul said in Colossians 3.16. So when we set our minds on the things of God, your mind is directed toward the truth. It's a mind that is seeking to please the Lord. It is a mind active in memorizing and meditating and applying the Word of God to your life. It's a mind sensitive to sin. sin. It's a mind eager to follow the Spirit's guidance. It's a mind to live for the smile of your Savior. Notice thirdly, your thoughts, your spiritual condition. Notice thirdly, your disposition. Your disposition. Do you receive as the scriptural diagnosis of your heart that you're hostile toward God? Now we're identifying what it means to walk according to the flesh. And Paul says here in clear terms in verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is what? 
hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Sin's nature cannot submit to God because it is the seed of indwelling sin and always hostile towards Him. I Notice I didn't say religious. I said the sin nature, the carnal nature, the flesh is hostile towards God. Well, how's this hostility expressed? Well, we see the radical ways that it is through atheists who express their hatred towards God. But I think it can be seen in other ways too. Apathy, just don't care. Don't care about God, about His Word, about the Gospel, about His glory. Rebellion and stubbornness. Blasphemy. Living as if He does not exist or His Word is of no consequence. That's a hostility toward the supreme sovereign of the universe. Notice, fourthly, your efforts. Walking according to the... to the flesh, your efforts will not reverse that. Have you come to terms that apart from the grace of God found in Christ, you cannot please Him? Look at verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible for someone who is only sinful ever to please God. And that's who we are apart from God's grace. Some believe it possible for fallen men who are still in the flesh to choose Jesus Christ. But to choose to be born again, that's not something we choose. That's something that happens to us. Unless God first does a work of grace in our souls and quickens us and makes us alive in Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 2 tells us, we would never want Him We would never desire Him, and we certainly would never have chosen Him. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But I'm going to bring an offering this week. That doesn't please Him. Uh, I'll start doing religious things. That does not please Him. I'll make self-improvements, removing things from my life that I know shouldn't be there. That won't please Him either. You have a sin issue that only He can resolve through the work of His Son. It's impossible to please God any other way than by faith in Jesus Christ. God's Son, God's sinless Son, who lived in this, on this world 33 years without sinning, without breaking God's commands. The, the, the Bible says that He was tempted in every way like we are. So what that means is that He's the only one qualified to be our all-sufficient Savior. And in that once-for-all pay, once payment on the cross, He died a substitutionary death For sinners, for everyone who would ever believe in Him, He died for them. So it's not based upon our efforts. Not at all. On Good Friday, I'm going to preach about the dying thief. The hymn says he rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. Now think about that old thief. What would he ever do for God? Whatever, what effort would he ever give? Nothing. But on that moment, in that miserable moment, he received meaning for his life 
where in the course of the six hours on the cross, he knew the one next to him was a ruler and a king. And he said to him, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus Christ gave him meaning in that moment where he would never do anything of religious merit as we would count it. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Never go to church, never go to prayer meeting, never give an offering, never help poor people, sick people. He believed on him. So salvation is impossible through our efforts. Speaking of impossible, how are you doing with your March madness brackets? I'm not doing well. Well, maybe some of you are thinking, what are you talking about? Uh, Well, every spring in March, the NCAA men's basketball tournament begins and they make known the brackets. The committee releases the brackets. 64 teams on the way to the national championship. So I, I read this week online, therefore it's true, that if you didn't know anything about basketball, your chance of picking the right bracket with no errors with 64 teams ultimately to the final two and the final one being the national champion would be 9 quintillion, 223 quadrillion, 372 trillion, 36 billion, 854 million, 775,808 to one. Now, if you knew the breakdown and the seeds and a little bit about basketball, you would every year vote for Kentucky. (laughs) No. But you would have, if you knew a little bit going in, it had some orientation, it would would be a mere one in 120.2 billion to one if you knew a little bit about basketball. So don't lose heart if you've already made about 15 mistakes in the opening games. Who would have ever picked Princeton to beat Arizona and other people? But we're talking about impossibilities. There's a chance you could do that. There's no chance at all for you ever to provide enough effort that would make you acceptable in the sight of God. Not one. No, not one. Impossible. Jesus said, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. So that when you and I reflect upon God's saving grace in our life, we give praise to Jesus Christ and to Him alone. Let Him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why? You know, this thought came to me in my preparation. Forget, maybe forgive this digression, but you know, I, I can imagine some saying, why do you spend so much time and energy in your preaching calling people to trust Christ? Why do you go to such great lengths to talk about sin? My sin, actually. It just seems to be so out of touch with this world. It is. It's otherworldly. We're talking about God and His terms. That the soul that resides within you will go to an eternal destination, one of two places. 
There's only two kinds of people. Those who believe and trust and savor Jesus Christ and those who go their own way. So which is it with you? Are you walking according to the flesh? Living for your own wants and desires? Thinking that somehow if you can stack it all together, you can have the nest egg and you can get to the end and buy all the toys you want to buy and live life for yourself that somehow you're going to be happy? You will not. Jesus tells the story about a man who, who built barns and bigger barns and, and, and he just had a, a hunger to amass things and one particular night he died. What does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? And lose your soul. Set your mind on the things above. Not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. May that be your testimony today. Would you bow with me in prayer? As we come to the close of this service, it really is a call to commit, to respond in faith. And perhaps you're here today and you understand what it means to walk according to the flesh because that's how you live your life. That's how you've lived your life. And this morning you've been presented with what I pray and hope that you would see as good news. That Jesus is the narrow gate. That he is the way and the truth and the life. And that by the work of the Spirit, what He did on the cross can be applied to your life right now. Would you call out to Him? Would you call out to Him? He saves. They said when He walked into Jerusalem, Hosanna. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna means save us now. Save me now, Lord. Come to me now. I believe. I trust. I trust you personally to forgive me and to guide my life. I yield to you right now as my rightful master and Lord. Maybe you are a believer and the the distinctions that you know that God wants in your life, obedience, a clear witness. You know, maybe you're involved in things you know you shouldn't be doing. And you know you're walking according to the flesh when you do that. And you know it doesn't sit well with you because you feel bad about it. But there's a a call to not only feel bad about it, but repent and stop doing it. Why? Because God's got a call on your life. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your lives, with your life. Father, we pray in these closing moments that as we take a long look at our short life, that we would be yielded to you. Lead us now in these closing moments for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Your needs on your heart. You respond accordingly. May this be a time of commitment and prayer to the Lord as we sing.